Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Effney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A man whose intelligence has impressed me greatly is our first guest. His name is Ambassador Morse Tan. He served in the administration as America's ambassador at large for global criminal justice, drawing on his expertise in international criminal law as a professor and now as the incoming dean, I'm very, very happy to report, of the Liberty University School of Law starting in January. Uh, The ambassador is the author of North Korea, International Law, and the Dual Crises, Narrative and Constructive Engagement. It's a delight to say that I had the privilege of interviewing him for a new program that is rolling out today, as I talk about in my commentary. Issues Alive is the title. Um, We call it The Big Picture, because that's what we're focused in on. And in specific focus in the course of my interview with Ambassador Tan was a piece of legislation known as H.R. 3446, now awaiting consideration by the House of Representatives. Uh, Its formal title is The Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, and I'm delighted to have a chance to continue and drill down further with Ambassador Tan on that act and uh, so much more. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. It's terrific to have you with us, sir. It's great to be with you all here. Congratulations on your new gig. I think it's a terrific um, university, and uh, I know they will benefit greatly from your leadership there, um, as it has with uh, our other friend, Dave Bratt, now the dean of the business school. Uh, I want to talk with you a little bit about... um, North Korea, though, at the moment, uh, and specifically your insights, having studied it closely uh, over many years, uh, as to the nature of the regime that we're talking about possibly making some sort of peace agreement with. Um, Tell us, you know, uh, both about how it treats its own people and what that ought to tell us about its uh, reliability in dealing with ours. Yes, it crushes its own people, so much so that I coined a new term to describe it, that this is a state that does not uh, recognize or honor the rights of its people, and therefore it is a state of rightlessness. And so the people are crushed, uh, yeah, not not only in these concentration camps, which are like those of Mao, Hitler, and Stalin, but the whole country is one jail of a country. And it organizes the whole country based on perceived political loyalty to the uh, Kims. They are falsely deified and treated as if they are deity. And it is the most unjust totalitarian state on the planet. And just to put a bit of a fine point on that rightlessness, describe what life is like for the average North Korean. And I'm not talking about those in the gulag of North Korea. I'm talking about the people who are being oppressed, as you say. How does that manifest itself, especially if they have uh, given any rise to suspicion as to uh, their loyalty to the Kim dynasty? Yeah, everything is impacted by the perceived political loyalty, whether it is their food allocation, which is usually minute, 
whether it is educational opportunities or work opportunities, it is all structured, um, whether it's housing allocation or clothing allocation. And they are basically slave labor to the uh, Kims. And there is now in its third generation of this dynasty, Kim Jong-un, presently the supreme ruler. And they are pumped with propaganda um, all day long. Um, they're not allowed to access other sources. And so there's a nationwide intranet, generally without access to the internet uh, by the people. Uh, it is, they are worked uh, not in a calling of their own choosing or anything along these lines. Typically, they are peasants who are working to farm the land uh, there or to work in the mines or to do uh, menial, heavy, uh, difficult labor. That is uh, typically what is imposed upon them. Um, the citizens in Pyongyang, the capital, are not allowed to cross the street without without permission. They're not allowed to move freely within the country, much less outside of the country. And so it is a uh, stifled, oppressed existence that, that they live day by day. This is generally the case with uh, these kinds of totalitarian systems. We'll be talking later in the program with an author of a very important book on the authoritarians. Um, the Kim's taken this big brother kind of uh, systematic oppression, though, to a whole new level, it seems. As is evident from uh, those who have fled the country, uh, the defectors that are a source of, I guess, most of our information, basically, about the conditions there and um, the, the state of uh, the people. Um, You've mentioned that they're malnourished, and that includes even their military personnel, who, relatively speaking, are treated very well. Um, I hear reports, I think you've talked about it on our program, Issues Alive, if I'm not mistaken, the stunted growth of many of the North Korean military personnel, even, let alone the rest of the population. Um, talk a little bit about what we've learned from these defectors uh, and, and what has been happening of late with respect to not only China, but South Korea's treatment. So there is a wealth of information that has emerged from the defector testimony. Um, it is extensive and you can see common themes and patterns that emerge as they independently testify about what is, what is going on. With respect to China, that is where most of the refugees flee to because the northern border is easier to cross than the most militarized border in the world, the uh, so-called demilitarized zone in between North and South Korea. And the Chinese Communist Party has a policy of hunting down and sending back, often to their death or to concentration camps, uh, back to North Korea. And notwithstanding the fact they have ratified the refugee convention, they do not abide by it. And 
they refuse to recognize these people as refugees, even though, uh, even though they are, and at a minimum, they would be refugee surplus, as is called. Um, they are refugees because they, if they are sent back, they would suffer the draconian punishments that are there. So, um, in South Korea as well, there, um, there is a diminished um, treatment uh, in terms of uh, how well they're treated uh, compared with before. There, there were a lot of benefits that were given to North Korean refugees, but many times um, they tend to be more marginalized, even more so if they are trying to send uh, true information back to North Korea or get involved with um, human rights and justice issues in regards to North Korea, in which case they are often blocked, uh, even persecuted by the current administration in South Korea. Now, this is all the more striking because we consider, of course, uh, South Korea to be a critical ally in that part of the world and very much aligned with us in terms of our values. Um, this is not so much the case, it seems, with the government of Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, for at least a few more months. Um, which brings me to the topic that we'll be discussing um, as we speak. It's in the future. As this program airs, it will have occurred earlier in the day, um, Ambassador Morsetan. Um, you'll be participating in a program where uh, a new book is being uh, rolled out, as well as uh, this series of programs that we've done on Asia and uh, specifically this question of North Korea and the prospects that we might inadvertently see a well-intentioned but ultimately wrong-headed idea of how to deal with North Korea, namely a peace agreement formally ending the Korean War, um, that, that, uh, that could go seriously wrong. So we're going to be doing all of that in this program today, and I just would invite you to sort of give our audience a taste of what you'll be saying there, specifically about this agreement, were it to happen, and how it might result in the hands of Moon Jae-in um, in a very dangerous new uh, environment, possibly even a new Korean War. Yes, indeed. So there was a armistice agreement, a ceasefire, which North Korea has violated numerous times. And they also enter into agreements for tactical gain. What they, what they do is they um, precipitate a crisis, get to the table who they want to get, they negotiate benefits, they swallow those benefits, and then break the agreement. And this is a regime with the overarching aims of promoting positive sentiment towards them in South Korea to get the U.S. uninvolved in the peninsula and then ultimately to take over by force. That Those have been the persistent overarching aims. The U.S. commitment to defend South Korea has been the largest deterrent from the reoccurrence of a full-scale Korean War. And so this would be akin to Neville Chamberlain um, saying that he has won peace in his time just before World War II erupts. Um, this is very ironic because uh, it would uh, weaken 
potentially eliminate um, the presence of American forces in South Korea because Moon Jae-in would potentially be able to then say, oh, these U.S. forces aren't needed. We have peace now. And they could dismantle the U.N. command, which the U.S. has been the leader of throughout. And so if that happens, then it would actually increase the possibility of a full-blown Korean War more than uh, accomplishing peace by a rather large margin. And so there's a great irony to it. A great irony indeed, uh, but one that could, in fact, be predictable given what you've said about the character of this regime. And I, I just want to underscore it because I think what you bring to this, Mr. Ambassador, both from your official uh, duties in the Trump administration with responsible for global criminal challenges like that posed by the North Korean government, and for that matter, its principal sponsor, the Chinese Communist Party, which, as we've talked about, I believe ought to be designated as a transnational criminal organization for its uh, criminal activities, as, as frankly, should the Korean regime in Pyong, North Korean regime in Pyong. Um, but when you look at um, this sort of failure to learn from past experience, um, the, the hard series of uh, uh, false promises that the North Koreans have made, uh, each of which has been ultimately reneged upon, and what we have done despite it uh, to enter into yet more agreements, uh, this would really seem to underscore the combination particularly of the human rights record of the North Koreans and their failure to uh, comply with any of their commitments. Um, given the stakes you've talked about, sir, uh, I think it's just absolutely vital that this kind of legislation not be, um, you know, advanced through the House of Representatives, it, it was, let it, alone yes. signed into law. Yes, yes, it would be a real mistake. And, you know, if North Korea had actually taken steps to demonstrate its peaceful intentions, which it has not, it has done the reverse, it has resumed missile tests, which were stopped and quieted during the past administration. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, probably afraid that it will remain culpable for war crimes that have been committed. It is already committing genocide against Christians, as well as those who are not completely of Korean descent. Uh, it is uh, committing all manners of crimes against humanity as well. And so this is a criminal cult along the lines of what you had described and mentioned earlier, where they are committing all manners of crimes uh, against their own people, as well as those outside of, uh, of the North Korean uh, regime as well. And so this is not a peaceful regime. It operates on the basis of force and to try to uh, come to this um, this pronouncement of peace uh, would be a step of walking into a very dangerous fantasy land. And legitimating the government of North Korea at the same time and encouraging um, the worst proclivities of the government of South Korea, I have to say as well. All, all good reasons to be very leery of this approach. Mr. Ambassador, we have to leave it at that, I think, for the moment. Um, I look forward to seeing you uh, in real time here shortly. 
uh, and uh, to talking with you further about all of this as we watch um, whether Congress begins to take serious steps in this direction or whether um, cooler heads prevail. And most especially, we get a grip on the character of the North Korean regime and hopefully um, see in South Korea a, uh, a new and more sensible, more reliable uh, allied government uh, in the post-election uh, period next spring. Thank you for your time today, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you for your service to our country and congratulations again on the service you're about to assume uh, and engage in at Liberty University's School of Law. Talk with you again soon, sir. Bill Walton is up next. We'll take stock with him on China, what it's doing to its own people and us as well, right after this.